That's how my good lady's going to read it. You get it on your phone, and uh, we're going to encouraging you to read through this uh, each, uh, each day, and we're starting today. So, um, and it's not big. You're able to do it, all right? So that's one day's reading, all right? Huge, you know? And even for me, who struggles with reading, because I used to have a lazy eye and it was hard work, I could survive that. So just the end of the day, just read that. And tomorrow, read that. And slowly, you'll get an overview of the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, all right? And then on Sunday, not every Sunday, because there'll be other specials along the way, uh, but uh, we'll then start to take up the theme for the week. So today, uh, so the first section, we're going to go from creation to Christ. That's uh, from now to Christmas, an overview of the Old Testament, the life of Israel. And uh, then the next section will be from Christmas to Pentecost, then from Pentecost to the Perusia. And uh, we will try to highlight um, when we're on. So this week, we're looking at creation, and it's week one, all right? And so you start the reading tonight. You can download it if you haven't already. I think it only costs about 12 bucks or something online. All right, and then this is the summary for the week. And let me read to you the summary for the week. Nothing is more beautiful than Genesis, wrote Luther. Nothing more useful. I think we should agree with his evaluation, for there is great beauty and great practical usefulness in this book. Here, especially in its earliest chapters, the great doctrines of the Bible are established. The sovereignty of God as creator, the power of his word, the original nobility of man, male and female, made in his image and given stewardship of the earth, the equality and complementarity of the sexes, the goodness of creation, the dignity of work and the rhythm of rest. These central truths are all laid down at the beginning of Genesis like massive foundation stones on which the Bible superstructure is built. And so today we'll look at the creator's initiative which you read up. Monday, from chaos to cosmos. Tuesday, light out of darkness. Wednesday, the sobriety of the Genesis narrative. Thursday, the image of God. Friday, human sexuality. And then Saturday, the Sabbath rest. And so you'll get a, an overview as you go through it. So may I encourage you uh, to do that for your own spiritual growth. Genesis chapter 1. Reading to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Thank you, Warren. The beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land 
that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. That's the word of the living God. Let's pray. Creator God of the universe, we come here on this day, the first day of the week, to celebrate and to worship and to honour you. 
We thank you that by your power and through your word and by your spirit, you brought everything into being. The first creation and the new creation. And so, Father, we pray that as we listen to you, you would speak to us, that we would hear from you and we would get to know you a little bit better and be drawn closer to you if we don't know you yet. And we ask this in your name, in your Son's name, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just one other thing I didn't mention last week. Uh, Mayo thought that somebody had bought this and forgot to take it home, if that's you. When we had Linton the artist last week and he had his art to sell, uh, if that was you, do see me. She left it with us. All right, well, good morning and welcome. We're going to do an introduction. We're going to head into Genesis and uh, we're going to look at a number of things. Genesis is the book of the beginnings. And if you want a key word for Genesis, it's simply beginnings. And as was read before, many of the major doctrines of the Bible all start here in embryo in Genesis and even in Genesis chapter 1. I remember when I started studying theology under the late Doc Gibson, and especially the doctrine of the Holy Spirit called pneumatology, the systematic study of the Holy Spirit. He said, don't jump into Acts. That's where most people jump into as if the Holy Spirit just turned up in Acts. (laughs) He said, you need to go back to Genesis. And you start to study from Genesis through. And so whenever you're studying anything in the Scriptures, you need to go back to the beginning and see what the whole of the Bible says. We were planning this year to have Malian College uh, come and do a week in the Word with us as part of our focus uh, on the Word this year and do a series on what they call hermeneutics, which is how to interpret the Bible and the principles that are applied to that. And uh, unfortunately, they're not able to do that, but they thought it was a great idea, and they're wanting to actually now put together a weekend event that they can uh, then provide to different to all the Baptist churches to come in and do this sort of thing that we were suggesting. So they've thanked us for the idea, uh, and uh, they're going to run with it, but in a different format and hopefully we can grab it some other time when they've put it together. However, we're going to do a little bit of that today. So just hang on and let's begin. I pressed something in the middle which was not what I should have pressed. Okay, sorry, that was me. <laughs> that was me. And so I want to just sort of start with some principles of understanding the Scriptures. First of all is context, which is so important. The context of the paragraph, the context of the whole passage the context of the book and how that book actually fits into the whole of the Bible. Because we live in a context and we come with our thinking from our background as well as who it was written to is in a context. And so we need to understand that context. Probably one of the ones I'll be focusing on today is Scripture interprets Scripture. We come with the understanding that God does not contradict himself. So when there is an issue or when there is a difficulty, we don't understand it. Well, what does the rest of the scripture say about that? What's the big picture of it? So scripture interprets scripture. And the meaning of words is used in scripture. Let me give you an example to help us to better understand. This is all part of what they call exegesis. So when, you, when you're looking at a word and we from the English read in the Old Testament, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
we in our culture and our background come and think of it more as the emotional side of us, don't we? You know, I love you and I received a lovely little card this morning next to my bed for Father's Day and had some lovely words in it. I'm not going to tell you what it said, but it was lovely and it had had somebody's heart, just by the way, just sort of over that direction. And, um, and, and so you're here. But, but if you, when you come to really understand a passage, you need to say, well, how, if it's written in Hebrew, how does they, what's the Hebrew understanding of heart? And when you, uh, Hebrew in that context... Heart is not primarily your emotions. They, they use bowels for emotions. And so that's why when you're reading the scripture, the bowels of our emotions. So the feeling is in your bowels. Your heart is more your volition, your choosing. And so you get a deeper and a better understanding what do they actually mean. So you do word studies. How is that word actually used in scripture? That's part of the reason why even in English we have to have translations and update it because the King James Version, when that was written, the word communication actually meant lifestyle. We don't use it that way. Let your communication be, you know, reflecting God. Well, we, we, we now use that as just your language, but back when they were trying to look at the Greek word or the Hebrew word, how does that relate into what we say? They use communication which sums up all of it because what it's saying, let your whole life, not just your words, whereas communication for us is uh, narrowed. And so that's why also translation is born. So words have meaning. And ultimately, a Baptist principle is a liberty of conscience. That sometimes we will disagree, but how do we, how do we work and minister uh, together? That's why somebody even asked me about, you've got Pastor of Hillsong. Uh, uh, who uh, is their college, don't they have different theology to us? Yes, they do, slightly. We'll pick up some of those things today. But he loves Jesus and some things we uh, are different on. But that's okay. So let's relax. And then how do we apply it? This is the application bridge. So the principles of interpretation, we're looking at the then, when it was written, and who it was written, and its context, and the meaning of words, and uh, how does Scripture apply Scripture? Then we have to discover the, the um, timeless principle for that, the implication of that. And then, of course, preaching as well as life and reading the Scriptures, how does that apply? How do I personalize that? How does that work out in my culture this time right now? And so I call that the application bridge. And so let me come back to this one that we'll uh, look at this morning. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's one of the most important principles as opposed to what we often do is what we call proof texting. Now, very often, I'll do that myself. Not so much proof texting, but I'll put one verse up because I can't put all the verses up on Scripture to sort of back up a statement I'm saying. But we have to be careful that that one verse that we're quoting actually reflects the whole of the Bible or all the Scripture says about that particular point. So does that text reflect the rest of Scripture? Because as I was taught, a text out of context becomes a pretext for what you're wanting to say rather than what does it actually say. So one text in isolation can cause issues unless you compare it with the rest of Scripture because Scripture interprets Scripture. And so that's what you have to do when you come to a difficult passage. You have to look at what does the rest of Scripture say about that to help us to understand that particular passage. 
And you need to begin at the beginning with Genesis. And so that's what we're going to do today. And I'm going to just highlight some of the doctrines and some of the things that very often the church has argued about over the years that have begun in Genesis. We're going to go back, back and look at some of those. Oscar Kuhlman, uh, a Lutheran pastor and theologian, during the uh, previous generation of the Second World War, said this, the fountainhead of all false biblical interpretation and all heresy is invariably the isolation and the absolutizing of one single passage. Now, he's writing it out of a single con about a particular context, and I'll share with you some historical things here to help you to understand why he's saying this. And so that's why I got that picture there, if you haven't picked it up. So often we can focus on that one passage and say, that's what God says. But we haven't taken into mind that what does the rest of Scripture say about that to help us to either understand that or change the focus of that a little because God will not contradict himself. So if he said all this, how do I understand that? That seems to be saying sometimes something different. And for him, back there under the Nazi regime is what the church had been teaching, which came out of and was affected by what kings in the English scene had been teaching earlier is from this verse or from this statement. The state has absolute authority and therefore as Christians we should give the state absolute obedience. Isn't that true? Doesn't that what the Bible say? We should give the state absolute obedience because, of course, Romans 13, chapter 1 says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So if I have a proof text, and that's where I start, and I already come from a background of the, um, uh, the divine right of kings, uh, and so that's my culture and that's my background, then, of course, I cannot argue with whatever is said there or disagree with that. And so Kuhlman, as a theologian, was struggling with this. All right? And so he then started, and so the church did, and we now probably have a different view now, as well, what does the rest of Scripture, what does the New Testament, how does the New Testament depict the state? And so he wrote an article to help Christians in that. And the Scripture, as he looked at the whole New Testament, depicts the state as provisional in God's plan and sometimes prone to overstep its God-given mandate. For example, do you remember in another Scripture, Peter and John actually disobey the governing authority, the Sanhedrin. And uh, so what do you do with that? On one hand, Paul's saying this, on the other hand, so how do you do that? You have to read the whole picture. That's the issue and the hard work of biblical interpretation rather than a verse in isolation. And so Kuhlman in his little study called The State in the New Testament says the New Testament to discern the attitude of the founders of the church towards government, what at first seemed to be contradictory attitudes is actually shown to be a unitary teaching on a Christian attitude toward all governments which actually depends on the state's actions. So the focus is on the question, is the state taking the place of God? The answer to that question determines how a Christian then is to interact with the government and uh, argues further on that. I'm not going into the whole of that. You can read that yourself and work through that. 
But you see, you know, that little pinhead, if you just take that in isolation and push it to its nth degree, then you will come out with a particular thing. And so if, if Hitler says something, then we need to obey it. And the church worked, unfortunately, struggled with that. And Mary often worked in that. And Coleman was saying, well, what does the whole of the New Testament say? Don't take one verse in isolation. That's just one from history. Another one. This one is a no-brainer to us because we're 500 years later from the Reformation and we just presume this is what it is. Salvation, is it by faith or by behavior? Well, you see, that was a huge thing in the time of Luther because you need to understand the context of their culture. We take it for granted now. However, we, we come in a context and come to the Bible with our own beliefs and our own worldviews, and sometimes it's hard to actually come to the Bible and say, what does it actually say, not what I want it to say. And uh, so if you're living in the time of Luther, of course, Luther insisted that the Bible taught salvation by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, and we now in the Protestant church take that just for granted. That's the bottom line. That's the culture we live in and are brought up in most Protestant churches. But the opponents and the world that Luther lived in grew up in a world where everyone was assumed to be Christian because everybody was baptized as a child. So everybody is already Christian. So how are we saved was the question. So people were seen as believers. And the church argued what was needed for salvation was good works. Their starting point and their belief system impacted their view as they came to the Scripture. And they had Scriptures to prove it. And I've given you a few uh, examples there and James was their big one but in if you look at Matthew 25 31 if you're coming there you think oh, well that's a good point and if you look at John 5 29 well there again you know the sheep and the goats and those who who've done good will rise to live and those who've done evil will rise to be condemned and the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 10 is based on good works and then James and uh this was the one. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So if you're proof texting, you come to that and you say, Luther, you're crazy. Just read what it says. Doesn't it make sense to you? And so the great discussions that were had. And Luther knew that James could be read as a corrective to misunderstand the doctrine of salvation by faith exegetically as you work through the words and the meaning and how it fits into the rest of Scripture. But he came up and that's what he said. James is in direct opposition to Paul and the rest of the Bible. So he said a single isolated text could not be allowed to count against Paul and the rest of the Bible. So he actually took the dramatic view that he refused James a place among the writers of the true canon of the Bible. So he thought it was less canonical and he didn't want it in the Bible. Fortunately, it was left there and later as the church and Christians work through what does the whole Bible say, we now live in a day where we believe salvation by faith alone through grace alone as we've come to understand what was James actually saying in light of the rest of the scripture. So this is not a new issue. This has been around as we come to interpret the Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture, so we've got to be careful of our proof text. 
And that's why Coleman said, Coleman said this, the fountainhead of all false biblical interpretation and heresy is invariably the isolation and absolutizing of one single passage. So, with that introduction, let's come to Genesis chapter 1 and look at some of the things that raises as we look at week 1. In the beginning, God created. Three words in the Hebrew. Bereshit bara Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim. Two, three powerful words that really sum up, you might say, the Christian worldview. In the beginning, God created. And the Christian worldview, how we view the world, how we understand reality, start here in Genesis. There was a beginning for everything apart from God. Here, God exists. It doesn't explain Him how he got there, because he doesn't have a beginning, and the rest of the scripture will come to show that. It doesn't argue for it, it just declares it. In the beginning, God. And from this statement, it's really saying to us, and the rest of the scripture then unpacks it, that God is eternal. In the beginning, when everything else began, God. God was already there. God is the eternal one, the uncreating one, the very use of the word God an understanding of the use of the word God is that he's not created. Everything else has its source from him. And so from here comes the God is eternal. At the beginning of everything there that was non-God, at the beginning of everything that was non-God already was, for he was, there was no beginning. That's why he's called God. There's no beginning for him. He was already there at the beginning of everything else. And everything else apart from God has a beginning. And so this impacts our whole world view. In the beginning, God created, brought into being. And so that's why Christians are not naturalists. We do not believe that matter is eternal. Only God is eternal. This belief is distinct from pantheism. Pantheism sees that matter and God are intertwined in the one and the same thing. But Christians believe that God is distinct from his creation, though he oversees his creation. God is separate to his creation. He created it. He's not part of it. So the tree is not God, or the stone is not God. Or for the Egyptians, the frog is not God. So when I kill it, I'm not killing God. No, God is beyond creation. He brought it into being. And God is personal. And we'll see that starting here in Genesis. So we disagree with Star Wars theology. You know, let the force be with you. Um, God is not just a force, an energy that goes through everything, though his energy and his creative power brought everything into being and sustains it. So that's some things in the beginning God Create it. It affects our worldview and what we believe. But then, of course, we as Christians have fought for many years and very more and continue to do now over how he did it, whether it's a young earth or an old earth or whether it's a recreated earth, whether it's a Big Bang theory or steady state theory or oscillating universe theory, and we can go on. And the latest book on that, just to throw another grenade in it, is uh, written by... Uh, John Lennox, who's um, got some brilliant stuff out there. And I guess that's where uh, liberty of conscience comes in as Baptists. There are some things that we 
haven't got to the end of yet, but we do agree that God created the universe. And I haven't read it all yet, but he presents a different view again, probably from what I have held. And uh, we can argue and divide ourselves over the how, depending on our particular scientific context of the times that we live in and that continues to change. Let me just encourage you in this. I remember at Melton when I was the pastor there in the Baptist church, there were three other young pastors, one at the Uniting Church and uh, one at the Anglican Church. And uh, we were very involved in RE in the schools. And I think by the end, we had a lady in our church who really pushed RI. And we had RI in every, by the end, every primary school in the whole city of Melton had RI and RI teachers. And so us ministers got together and we decided we would put on a program because we all sung and played guitars. We are all young back then. And uh, so the three of us got together and we would put on an Easter program and share the gospel and we would put on a Christmas program and share a gospel again. We'd go to each of the primary schools and have the whole school come through during one day and we would spend the whole week doing it together. Now I could have said, a brother from the United Church, your view of how God created is different to my view. <laughs> And, uh, yes, I don't agree with it. <laughs> uh, I go seven days and you go millions of years. And uh, we had some good discussions. But we decided when we come to preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel, let's work together to reach our city. So we might have different views on this, but we both agreed that there was one God who created everything. He was the source. And so we lived under the liberty of conscience. In the beginning, God created. That's what we agree on. Bereshit, bara, Elohim. And there is a lot there that you can pack out and the rest of the scripture then develops God as creator. God is the beginning. God is the source, which we won't go in today. And the spirit of God was hovering. We see in Genesis that God is a fellowship. You'll see the beginnings of the principle or the doctrine of the Trinity right here in Genesis. It's interesting that the word for God, Yahweh, or Elohim that's used in Genesis is actually a plural word. It could be, except you've got to read the context, could be translated gods. But the context shows that it's not because those who do English, I think it's put with a singular verb or However, that works. I was never good at that. But what it's saying, it's, it's teasing you that it has a plural understanding, but it's singular. There is only one God. And then we hear, see this introduced. Then the Spirit of God was hovering, hovering over the waters. It goes on to say this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Linton talked about this last week. The picture in the Old Testament is developed in Deuteronomy as God as an eagle hovering, or Jesus used the mother hen with her chicks hovering over, and God wants to bring you under his care. And so God's attitude and desire in this creation was one, a God of compassion and care. You see, some would teach that the God of the Old Testament is fire and judgment and harsh, and the God of the New Testament is love. And there are two different gods spoken of in the Bible. Not so. Not so. Scripture interprets Scripture. And right here in Genesis, 
is a picture of God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and loyalty that's developed further in the Scripture as it refers to the Holy Spirit revealing God's heart of activity and attitude, hovering and flattering over His creation to bring order out of the chaos and to bring good out of the void. The heart of God was for your life and mine. God cares about His creation, that it becomes what's in His mind. And so we are not deists who believe that God just started up the universe and doesn't really care about it and just set it on its way and it just runs now. God's not intimately involved. No, the picture of God in creation starting from Genesis is of a a mother hen hovering and fluttering over what he cares for. And so that's to remind us in this universe, the one who created you cares for you. And he has the best in mind for you. He is like a mother hen wanting to look after you and care for you. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, seven times, and God said, and God said. And when he speaks, what he says comes to be. He is the creative word. And so... It says this, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so we have here the embryo of what the rest of the Bible develops and what we call the Trinity, right here at the beginning. And uh, our, uh, let me go back, and our understanding of Jesus, or what is called Christology, starts here in Genesis. John chapter 1 brings it out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything came into being through Him, picking up Genesis. Scripture interprets Scripture. So how do we understand Genesis? John picks it up again and refers to Jesus as the Word of God. And through Jesus, the whole world came into being and everything was created. So read John chapter 1 and see how it fills out and develops from Genesis chapter 1. And so we have here the beginnings of the Trinity. The word Elohim is plural, but the context is there is only one God, and Deuteronomy picks that up, but there is God created, and the Spirit of God was hovering, and the Word of God. Those three are right there at the beginning. However, over the years, and very often, and very much so in the early church, we just take it for granted now, there was an argument over a number of statements that the Scripture says in the focus of one proof text or a number of them. And so the Trinity, or is Jesus not fully God? And the early church struggled with it. That's why we have the Apostles' Creed and the, and the Nicene Creed, a lot of creeds trying to state out. So the Arians and now later this time in our own time, the Jehovah's Witnesses go to the Scriptures and they say, however... What about these scriptures? What about Luke 18? What about John 5? What about 1 Corinthians 15? What about John 14, 28? Even Jesus said, for the Father is greater than I. So how do we understand that? So the anti-Trinitarians have a proof text or two which they can cite to prove their case. But the truth of the matter is that these texts are quoted only to support a preconceived idea if you come from a particular viewpoint. And it's understandable. If your foundation, if you come with the belief that matter is evil, well, didn't, what about the fall and everything? Sin affected the whole of creation. And so sin has spoiled everything. So if you come from that, how can then a holy God 
take on matter and become incarnate, take on flesh, wouldn't he become sinful? And therefore, Jesus, if he took on flesh, can't be fully divine. He'd have to be less than God. So you can sort of understand where they come from. So if you come from that viewpoint in that context, and then you pick up these scriptures that fit that, well, didn't Jesus say this? But biblical interpretation, God does not contradict himself. And so we have to look at those scriptures. What is Jesus saying? He is, as compared to, what does the rest of the scripture says that brings light or sheds light on that? And so they would say, but the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I say, yes, you're right. The word Trinity, that's the word we use to explain that the Bible teaches that God the Father is divine. And God the Son is given all the attributes of the Godhead. And God the Spirit is given all the attributes of the Godhead. And yet the scriptures very clearly in the Shema of Deuteronomy said there is only one God. So we need to accept, as the scripture we read it, there is only one God, but there's one God is a God of love who is persons in relationship. And the English word we use to try and explain that is a triunity or trinity. And it starts off right back here in Genesis. We won't go through all the arguments. I'm just saying the foundations of our doctrines come from there. And we now take that for granted. And God saw that it was very good. Everything that God created was good. This world is good, beautiful. And it started with great dignity and beauty as God's creations. So Christians believe that what we see now still has that beauty and that dignity, but it's been tainted by sin and the fall. And we'll look at that in a few weeks' time. But when God created it, it was good. Everything God does is good. And so we start to learn a little bit about the character of God here. Here begin some of the attributes of God here in Genesis, built out through the rest of the Scripture. Although He's powerful and almighty, and He creates out of nothing, He is caring and compassionate like a mother eagle, hovering over his chicks, and he is also good, and all he does and produces and does and creates reflects his goodness. And that's why the Scripture says, the will of God for your life is good, acceptable, and perfect, because God is good, and he cannot do anything bad. For that's his nature. Then it goes on and says, God created male and female. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Whoa, how Increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so a question comes up, start in Genesis. Are men and women equal or are women subordinate to men. So the relationship of men to women begins in Genesis. Are they equal or are women subordinate to men? In the beginning, we notice a couple of things from the Genesis account. Both are created in the image of God. Both received the blessing of God. Both were given the command of God to rule over the creation. However, if you grew up in the Huli culture where I grew up, uh, that's not what they believed. That uh, when a woman would walk into the room, all the men would stand. And my dad asked, why do you do that? And uh, they said, 
Because he said, oh, is it out of respect? <laughs> they laughed at him and said, oh, no, no. We stand because we would never have a woman higher than us or over us. You see, in that culture, if a man's walking along the road, I remember because as a man, I'd be walking along the road and a lady would be walking the other way. She would hop off the road and walk in the ditch. So she was lower than me. And Huli men would build a house when they got married for their wives, about 50 metres away, I think it was, and it was divided in half. Uh, his wife and the young kids would sleep in one side and his pigs, uh, which were very important, would sleep in the other side. They didn't live together. They were his belongings. He owned them. He'd bought them, both sides of the house, and they lived there. It's interesting when Christianity came and people became followers of Jesus that that relationship changed in how that house became one. It impacted how they lived and how they treated women. So let me come to this. And those who come or believe in the subordination of women to men, they have some scriptures and there's one very, very difficult one, I'll admit. But let me clarify something before I hit this. I'm not talking about the principle of biblical submission in social relationships that Ephesians talks about, that the New Testament talks about, that the Scriptures talk about. That's a whole separate doctrine that honors Christ and reflects how he, though he was equal with the Father, fitted in with his Father's purposes and submitted to his thing, will, and came to earth as a human being. I'm not talking about what Paul talks about in Ephesians where uh, submit to one another and shows how wives submit to husbands and husbands how they are to submit to their wives in that relationship or, or masters uh, to their servants. And just by the way, the scripture is not saying that slavery is all right in that. That's another issue. We'll, you can follow that through another time. All right, so I'm not talking about the principle of submission and how that works in social relationships, how it should work in the church as well, or marriage, or in the workplace. But I'm talking here about the belief that women by creation are subordinate to men. Is that the message of the Bible? Or does it teach the equality of opportunity for women and men to exercise gifts of ministry in the congregation? Challenging one. You see, when it's a bit closer to home, we can look at the others and it doesn't matter. But this was not only Huli culture, this is also sometimes our culture and our background and certainly mine. But let's look at some of those scriptures. Should women pray or preach in a congregation? Well, it's interesting that Paul says in one of the scriptures that he's used that every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her body. So what's the context there seems to be, and this is the issue, what was he talking about? Because you see, the trouble with the, not the trouble with it, the trouble with the Bible is it's not a textbook. You don't go to page chapter one and I'll tell you uh, about combustion engines and how you make them, or about this or about that. It's a letter, it's a relationship of God with his people. And very often Paul is sharing with the people of God, there's a particular problem. So trying to understand what he says, we've got to understand what the problem was, and sometimes we don't know. Um, but here, perhaps it's men should minister as men and women as women, because in the new creation, the scripture says that uh, there's no longer any Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. We're all one in Christ, and that taken to an extreme. And maybe the women here were, in their culture, dishonoring their womanhood. Maybe this will fit more with our coming culture 
and it'll make more sense to us shortly as we're saying there is no sexual distinction. Paul's not saying there's no sexual distinction. And he's challenging the women, you need to, in your culture, be a woman. But he's not saying don't preach or don't pray. He's actually saying when you do, do it this way. And so Paul needed to give specific instructions to particular churches about some unique problems arising from the ministry of women in their case in 1 Corinthians 11. And then 1 Corinthians 14 about women keeping silent. How do we understand that? If we just take that on its own, it seems to be clear. However, the problem is in context, he's already just said that women do pray and prophesy in church. He's just finished 1 Corinthians 12 going through the gifts of the Spirit given to the body by the Spirit. The Spirit determines what he gives, he gives. And never did he say that only preaching and leadership are given to the men and these other gifts are given to the women. He talks about the whole body working together. And so the gifts of the Spirit are given to everyone. And this situation, it seems to be able to be solved by wives talking to their husbands when they get home. So he's not talking about all women being submissive to men. He's saying to the wives to talk to your husbands at home. So the context, maybe ideas include the problem he was addressing, maybe idle chatter, disruptive tongue speaking, disputing with the preachers or the prophets and the questioning of husbands in the service in the middle of it. Uh, We don't know what the problem he was uh, addressing. However, it does not include all women because... Paul in this passage says it's solved by asking questions at home of your husband. So it's wives ask questions at home. Maybe I understand a little bit of this growing up amongst the Hoolies too when we had church. I mean, sorry ladies, but in that culture the ladies' side was noisier than the men's side because they didn't sit together. The women would sit on this side and the men on this side. And yes, there was calling out and asking questions and they were talking to their kids. And I remember one papa and preacher having to because they had an L-shaped church and all the women sat on there and all the men sat up there, he had to turn over here and tell them to be quiet because they were getting very noisy uh, while he was trying to, trying to preach. We don't really know, but in the context, uh, this is what he says. Yes, 1 Timothy 2. This is the one really difficult text in the whole of the Bible for those who would argue for the equality of opportunity for women and men to exercise gifts of ministry in the congregation. Uh, And perhaps one suggestion is, as we try to struggle with this, I do not permit a woman to teach men in a dictatorial way and women should remain calm. Um, uh, But this is a bigger thing that we can uh, finish on one Sunday morning because the church has been looking at this thing for some time. So I just want to just put some thing out there so we start to think wider. Equality of opportunity for women and men to exercise gifts of ministry in the congregation. If you just take 1 Timothy on its own, you would come to one decision. However, this one difficult passage, if we start that as the foundation, how do we explain everything else? Or do we see this and struggle with this as we've done a justification by faith on the Trinity, on the state, on all the other issues that start here in Genesis. Uh, Because sometimes there are verses that seem opposite to everything else at the time in the particular context. But Scripture interprets Scripture. So we keep working on it and keep working through it. So let me give you a few of some of the other black dots in Scripture that struggle with that one. In the Old Testament, Miriam is referred to as a prophet and leads the people in worship after the great victory that we saw this morning. In two kings, Josiah the king 
tells Hilkiah the priest to go and inquire of the Lord, and he is to go to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shulam, or Shalem, so even in the Old Testament. And Deborah was a prophet and the wife of Lapidoth, and she was leading Israel at that time. So how do we do that? Were they all being disobedient and God actually wasn't speaking through them and uh, Josiah shouldn't have inquired of God through a a woman. Um, And so we have that. And the new creation also says this, that we are a part of. Let me just throw out others. Just I'm not going to make anybody happy by this by the end. Just, just keep in mind, balance these other thoughts around that. In the larger circle of apostles, Paul mentions Junia, a woman. It's interesting, it wasn't until the 12th century, I understand, that in one of the translations of the Bible, somebody turned that into a, a male word, uh, whether they didn't like the idea that it was actually a name of a woman uh, in the Scriptures. Luke, Paul, and John also mention women who prophesied in Christian assemblies. I won't go into all of them, but what does the word prophecy? It's not just forth-telling. Most prophecy is proclaiming God's word. Look at the percentages of foretelling in the Old Testament prophets. There's very little campaign to them preaching or declaring the word of God, and Paul puts it this way. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. That's the purpose of the preaching. Paul commends a number of women for their labors in preaching the gospel. I don't know, it doesn't call them evangelists, but they were involved in the outreach work of the church. Mary and Trophinia and Phosa and Persis and Eudi and Syntyche were having a fight, and that's what we know about them. And in the earliest days of Christian mission, apostles and prophets were the main teachers. Then a group of teachers distinct from them seemed to emerge, including a married couple, and one of them we know about, Priscilla and Aquila, and it's interesting in that culture, it always... Uh, mentions Priscilla first as if she was the main speaker in that group. We don't know for sure, but it seems to be the case when it's mentioned. In addition to these, we find a group of people called deacons, and twice Paul speaks of women deacons, not deaconesses, women deacons. And Paul even make, seems to make Phoebe the deacon leader of the church at Sencria. So I'm just sort of highlighting it's not sometimes we think as clear-cut. And the New Testament scholar that I studied, and Kevin Giles has tried to research some of this and written some stuff on it, and he says, sometimes we end up fighting over or majoring on minors when one untypical comment spoken to an exceptional situation was taken as central and definitive, and the overall New Testament perspective was overlooked. And so all I'm just saying, with biblical interpretation, you say, what does the whole of the Bible say? And starting with Genesis created man and woman together, equally in the image of God, with God's blessing and with God's command uh, to rule over the creation. And then lastly, God rested. We won't go into this today. I've run out of time. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all the work that he had created and that he had done. So just I'll throw another grenade out there. (laughs) Should we worship on the Sabbath? Are we okay to worship on Sunday? Because the Sabbath on the seventh day was then turned into law for the Jewish people uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, what's the principle of the Sabbath as it's taught through the whole Scripture? There's even a group called the Seventh-day Baptists. Baptists who meet on the seventh day. In America, of course. (laughs) Seventh-day Baptists. Sorry for the Americans here. (laughs) So we're just having a joke at your expense. Um, 
And, uh, and we can get into the whole principle that starts off. Yes, we need to rest. And there's some interesting stuff in the readings this week have a, uh, where uh, Lenin, I think, tried to change the work week and so did uh, the French Revolution. In the end, they came back. The biblical concept of every seven days having a day of rest uh, worked. Uh, that's how God started. He rested from his work. And then the spiritual uh, implications of Hebrews talks about resting from our labels and Christ. So I can't get into all that. But the principle of rest on one day and seven for the purpose of worship begins here in Genesis. Following it through the nations of Israel, part of the law, into the New Testament. Um, and, uh, and I won't get into that because of time. But let me come back from all we've learned. So what you might have seen is a lot of the doctrines of the Bible. When you're studying them, Scripture interprets Scripture. So we start from the beginning. What does God say in the beginning? What does the Word say in the beginning? And how does he expound that? The Trinity is right there in the beginning. The character of God's right there in the beginning. Um, how man and woman were created right back there in the beginning. All these were back there. And then we build them out and understand more and more. And I want to leave with you with this one thought. You are incredibly significant and deeply loved. You are here in this world, the Bible says, Christians believe and God reveals because of the loving decision of an all-powerful creator who made us for relationship with him. Because the creator God is a fellowship. That's where the idea of the fellowship of the ring came for the Narnia stories. God is a fellowship, a triunity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created us in his image to reflect his character. And he invites us into that fellowship to enjoy him forever. And as we look at all that he has done and all that he wants, the response of our heart and life should be one of worship of worship, of our whole life, of obedience to him, to know him and to honour him. You are significant and deeply loved. In all of the arguments or discussions that I've thrown out there today that start in Genesis, don't even get so focused on that pinhead that you miss this. You are significant and deeply loved. You are not here by accident. You are not just a conglomeration of chemicals that will go nowhere. You have a beginning and you have a purpose. And it all starts and all came from the heart and the desire of the eternal one who has always been there. And he invites you and me into his eternity to enjoy it with him. And he made that possible through his son, our Lord Jesus, and his death on the cross if you will have faith and trust in him and then live out in obedience and worship of him. Creation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray that you'll give us a love for your word. It is your love letter to us. And so, Father, we pray that you'll give us a love and a desire to read it, 
to understand it, to struggle with it, to think through it. In order that we might come to know you more and to worship you more deeply. And that our lives would be lived to reflect you and to obey you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor John for unwrapping the Word of God for us this morning. We're just going to have our closing song this morning. All the uh, the songs underway, we'll pass around the offering uh, buckets. If you're new here, just visiting, don't um, feel embarrassed or obliged, but um, certainly if you'd like to fill out the uh, Connect card, just pop that in the bucket as it passes by. We'll remain seated for the first portion of the song. Um, our worship leader will indicate when we may all rise together. Thank you.